We'll start if you have any questions this morning. Diane is, is not well. She's, she's sick, so she won't be asking questions. So somebody else, if you've got one. Bev, do you have one? Okay. Oh, the music's still on. Right. Who was taken into exile? And, and I'll definitely talk about that. Any other? Did, did anybody on that, just, just out of curiosity, um, did anybody put something other than either Mordecai or one of his descendants? Did anybody have a kind of a more, um, I don't know, nebulous answer to that? Okay. Number 10, who was taken into exile? Okay, just, just wondering. That's fine. Yes, Wilma. Were they married? Um, <laughs> not the first night. Um, I assume you mean Xerxes and Esther. Uh, the author does not say the word marriage, but it is um, implied that they were married. Of course, it wasn't his, not only not his first marriage, it wasn't his only marriage, but, you know. Details, details. <laughs> yes, Cheryl. Right. Well, I don't know what Persian marriage ceremonies were like. I'm a little more familiar with Jewish marriage ceremonies, which have stayed, uh, traditional Jewish marriage ceremonies have stayed uh, pretty much the same for thousands of years in terms of um, the traditions. Uh, and the traditions are going to change from, from culture to culture, but there was a, you know, there was a set sort of condition of things you do uh, in order to end up married. And I, I don't know what they were in Persia, but uh, all we know is he set a crown on her head, uh, made her queen. Yes? Right. There's apparently, I think the harem is just the word for the conglomeration of concubines. I don't think there really is any difference there. But when you look even at, at people, Old Testament Jews, where it says, you know, you had a certain number of wives and a certain number of concubines. So there has to be some sort of difference between that. And um, obviously Xerxes, this wasn't the first roundup. <laughs> kind of liked rounding up women for himself. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, the harem was the group of concubines. And I think unless you were really something special in his eyes, you know, you just stayed in the harem um, rather than actually being asked to, to marry him. I think that's kind of what we see happening with Esther probably had happened before. Any other questions? Okay, well, let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Father, thank you for your faithfulness uh, to us. And thank you for this story that has so much to teach us about that faithfulness. I pray you would open our hearts and minds to hear from you today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
So uh, in chapter 2, in chapters 2 and 3, actually, we meet some new characters. The only person that is left from chapter 1 is Xerxes. The advisors are gone, Memucan's gone, uh, Vashti is gone, uh, she's been deposed, and so all we have left in chapter 2 is Xerxes uh, from chapter 1. And in chapters 2 and 3, we meet Mordecai and Esther, her also called Hadassah, as uh, I wrote over here on, on the board for you, um, and Haman. Now, I brought chocolate um, for the person that can tell me. There may be more than one person. I'm really sorry. We had Reese's Peanut Butter Cups and Twixes, and my children ate them all. So all we're left with is her, a Hershey bar or Whoppers, whichever you prefer. But is there anyone here, first person, that can tell me which uh, U.S. senator has a wife named a wife. It's his only wife. He doesn't have multiple wives. He's Jewish. That would be really bad. Um, has a, his wife's name is Hadassah. Yeah. Joe Lieberman. Yay. See, I'm not that much of a Republican. I put Joe Lieberman in there. That was a funny. Esther, you, you, here, I've got a whole bag of chocolate over here. I've got a whole bag of chocolate. Help yourself. <laughs> I should give it out. Anyone named Esther has a child named Esther. But. Um, so just some background, just some review from chapter one. Vashti is deposed, uh, and the concept of a new queen, let's find a better one for you, buddy. Let's find one that'll do what you ask her to do, is, is you know, thrown out there. But there are no details hammered out on, on how uh, he would do that. He was too busy getting ready to go to war, I suppose, at that point. Um, and, and then chapter one also gives us kind of this character study on King Xerxes, what King Xerxes was like. Uh, and we find out that he was easily manipulated, and we find out, out, that out even more in chapters two and three. Uh, he was, e I love this word, egomaniacal. He was an egomaniac. It was all about him. Um, and he was impetuous, never gave much thought to his actions or what that would mean for other people in his life. Uh, and he uses people for his own purposes. Uh, what he wants, he wants, he doesn't care what that means for you. Um, and then we also get this picture of his kingdom, of the Persian kingdom at the time. And the author chooses to present it to us at its zenith, at its highest point. In fact, the words that the author uses that is that uh, it, by the party that he threw for all the nobles, he was displaying the splendor and the glory of his majesty. And so that is how the author chooses to begin um, the book of Esther. And he also shows us the vastness of Xerxes' kingdom, how large, and indeed it was, very large. Now, in between chapters 1 and 2, there is some unwritten history. There is some, um, some, some unwritten uh, background to be told. Between chapters, Xerxes suffers a stunning and embarrassing defeat at the hands of the then upstart Greeks. They weren't upstart for long, but at that point they were. Uh, and so he comes home uh, a broken and much less wealthy man from that battle. That battle that was the one that he held the six-month recruiting party to win support for. So here, here's kind of the point or the points of chapter one. First of all, the author wants to paint for us a picture 
of Xerxes and his kingdom to short, sort of give us a bird's eye view of, of what Xerxes was, Xerxes was like and what his kingdom was like. And secondly, he wants to set the stage for the story he's about to tell about Esther and Mordecai. And thirdly, by setting that stage, he wants to give us a glimpse of what Esther and Mordecai will be up against uh, with this king in this court. So we begin chapter 2, and, and the king is going to choose a new queen. Isn't that romantic? Uh, in, in verses 1 through 4, Shazam, change. Hey, did you do that? Oh, good, good. Okay, so Esther 2, verses 1 through 4. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. He's lonely. <laughs> He's wanting a woman. Uh, then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Can I just say what about the ugly virgins? Can't they get some love? I bet they were never so happy to be ugly in their lives. Uh, so for all the beautiful young virgins for the king, let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. So they're even more beautiful. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king. <laughs> Can you think of a man that it wouldn't appeal to, please? <laughs> And he followed it. I'm sure they, oh, yeah, tw oh, twist my arm. Um, yeah, you know, it's so funny. Does this not sound like an ancient version of The Bachelor? Yeah. <laughs> you thought that was a new concept. I bet the people that created The Bachelor are like, this is a great idea. Whoever thought of this? Yeah, well, Xerxes, as a matter of fact, uh, thought of this. Uh, this actually, and this won't surprise you, was not the normal procedure for a king to choose a wife. It may be a way to choose a concubine. Normally, a king chose his wives from among the nobility. So this is, this is unusual. And in fact, Memnuchin may have had ulterior motives in, in suggesting a new and better wife because he may have wanted one of the women in his family to, to improve his career within the court uh, to be chosen. However, even though this is unusual, it is not unheard of in ancient history, even in ancient Persian history, for a king to marry someone outside of the nobility, which certainly Esther was outside of that, even though her cousin, Mordecai, was a member of the king's court in some capacity. Um, it was not unusual, however, for an ancient king to have concubines, uh, for them to have a harem of women. Um, and Persian kings had many concubines. They came into the harem as much as uh, these girls will as virgins. Uh, and they lived, as uh, Karen Job says, in, in luxurious desolation after sleeping with the king. Uh, because unless he asked for her to return to his bed, they were banished to the harem, never to return to their families, never to have the opportunity to marry and have children of their own. Uh, they would live uh, in a wealthy way, but uh, I wouldn't say a satisfying way. Um, now, this has caused a lot of particularly female theologians, this whole scene, 
um, to cry sexism. And, and I gotta tell you, I'm not a big feminist, you probably know that already, but I gotta tell you, this is not sexism. Really, it's not? No, it's not. We're, at least doing this wasn't sexist in this sense. Uh, it is offensive, but it was uh, Persian kings routinely, actually ancient kings routinely, rounded up young boys and made them eunuchs and forced them to serve the king for the rest of their lives, including poor Haggai. So it is, it's, it's awful, it's offensive, uh, especially to us, but it isn't necessarily sexist. In fact, uh, Karen Job says one might argue that the young girls were actually getting the better deal. Uh, and she says it was, uh, it was a brutal act, rounding up these girls and rounding up the young boys, uh, it was a brutal act and typical of how power was used in the Persian court. Everyone, whether male or female, was at the disposal of the king's personal whims. And so that is true of both this situation for the young, beautiful virgins, and as well as for uh, men like Haggai. Uh, again, we see in these verses that Xerxes is being manipulated. And, and he doesn't even know it, apparently, or he doesn't care. Again, the king is told what is in his best interest. You know, it would really be better for you, Xerxes, if you did this. You might feel a little better if we rounded up some, some women for you. So again, he is so easily manipulated that he doesn't even seem, seem to think things through not only for the young women involved, but even for himself. And they also prey on his desire for women. And he was probably pretty easy prey at this point. In other words, for the second time in two chapters of this story, people other than the king are dictating to the king what he will decree. They're telling the king what he'll do, what, what he should do, what is in his best interest. And, and I think that the author is mocking the king. What kind of king is this? He doesn't even make his own decisions. Um, and then in, in this chapter, we're introduced first to Mordecai and then to Esther. Well, please, if I ask nicely, will you move? There we go. Uh, this is, this is uh, verses five and six on Mordecai. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried away into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken ca captive with Jehoiakim, I don't know, king of Judah. Uh, now, the first thing we learn about Mordecai, and in Hebrew writing, the first thing you learn about anybody is important, is that he is a Jew. He is a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. And then it tells us who he is descended from. Now, the word that says son of, Jer, son of, could be son. I mean, this could be Jer's father, Shimmy's his grandfather, and Kish's his great-grandfather. But other places, that same word means descendant of. So they could be skipping generations. If that is the case, it's possible that, that the author's saying something more here because Kish was the name of Saul's father. The first king of Israel's father was Kish. Saul was also from the tribe of Benjamin. So it is possible that the author is setting up that this is a descendant of the first king of Israel, Saul. Um, but then who was taken exile? The most natural reading of this is Mordecai was taken exile 
into Babylon. But that would have made him over 100 years old. Even if he was a baby, even if he was little Autumn here when he was born, he'd be over 100 years old by now. Uh, and so that doesn't, you know, that, that, that would be difficult to imagine. Um, it, could be, it could be saying Kish, who was take, carried in exile, and Kish isn't Saul's father. Kish is his great-grandfather, is Mordecai's great-grandfather. And that, that's not the most natural reading of the Hebrew, but that's possible. I don't think the author is necessarily saying either one of those things. I think he's making a theological point um, in saying that Mordecai was carried off into exile. Here's what I mean. Um, I believe that he is identifying Mordecai with the people of God, with the children of the covenant. See, when, when the people of Judah were carried off into exile, all of God's people, including those yet to be born, were carried off into exile. So I think the author here is associating Mordecai with the exile and therefore with God's people, even though he was more than likely born in Persia uh, after the exile or born in, in the uh, Babylonian Empire somewhere after the exile. Um, and and this, is, this is going to become even more of a point in a little bit when we meet Haman. He was, Mordecai was still one of God's dispersed and displaced people, and the author wants to make sure we're aware of that. So that's Mordecai, and then we meet Esther. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. So here we have this beautiful young woman, Hadassah, and she is the only person in the book that has two names, uh, her Jewish name, Hadassah, and her Persian name, Esther, which comes from Ishtar, which means star. And it's a hilarious movie. I don't care what anyone else says. You ever seen the far side thing where it's video stores in hell and everything on the shelf is Ishtar? It's a funny movie, that's all I'm saying. Uh, it's possible that Esther is a transliteration of Hadassah, but there are some ancient uh, Jewish rabbis who believe that that was the nickname given to her by the Persian people, that, that, that she was a star uh, and that she was beloved. Uh, it's, it's impossible to know. So to having two names, if you were a Jew in exile, was not that unusual. To have a Jewish name and then to have a Persian name or a Babylonian name is not that unusual. In fact, uh, Mordecai was likely called Marduka, which, which is, was a Babylonian god. Um, and, and Mordecai is kind of a derivative of the name Marduka, which would have been his Persian name. And, and it's, it's just possible that the author is making a subtle allusion here by giving us two names for Esther and, and referring to her by her Persian name throughout rather than her uh, Jewish name and referring to Mordecai as as a derivative of his name, his Persian name, uh, Marduka. Uh, he, he might be making a subtle comment about their assimilation into the, into the pagan culture, uh, the pagan Babylonian slash Persian culture. Uh, he could perhaps be condemning them for becoming comfortable within that culture, from being so comfortable that they could conceal their identity 
they, they lived in such a, a Persian manner that nobody even knew they were Jewish. Um, we can't know that for sure, but it does make sense. So the first thing we learn about Esther is that she's Mordecai's cousin, that he has raised from birth because her parents are dead, and that she is beautiful, which is why she's going to be rounded up for the king. Um, so the edict is carried out in verses 8 through 11. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Esther was taken. Uh, it, it doesn't say that she went of her own accord. She was taken. Was she taken against her will? How did she feel about it? We just don't know. It is impossible to say. The author may be suggesting that she and, and the rest of the people involved in this story are caught up in events that are beyond their control. Um, that events are being superintended, are being controlled by some unseen force, which the author knows and we know is God. Um, but in that case then, her personal feelings about the situation are pretty irrelevant. Um, and, and they're irrelevant to the author because he, he doesn't tell us. We don't know how she felt about it. Could be that she did not want to go at all. Could be, hey, I get to live in the lap of luxury. She might have liked that. I don't know. We do know that she immediately wins favor within this group of women, a large group of women, and she's immediately singled out by Haggai as this one is special. For her beauty, probably. Uh, but she wins the favor of the eunuch in charge. And, and Mordecai tells her to conceal her identity as a Jew. Now, why, why did he do that? Well, almost certainly, this would have meant that, that Esther would have had to break Jewish law in order to live within the harem. Certainly, she'd have to break dietary laws. If she's gonna, she can't say, hi, I'm Jewish. I can't eat the ham. She can't say that if she's going to conceal her identity. Certainly, she couldn't uh, observe Sabbath or the holy days. And so, certainly, she would have had to, to break the law to do that. So why, why then would Mordecai tell her to conceal her identity? We don't know. What were his motives? We don't know. Was it a good thing or a bad thing? The author doesn't tell us. Did Mordecai fear anti-Semitism within the court for her? That's possible, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't tell us. He, all he tells us is that he checked on her daily. And that is a possible indication that, that there, he may have feared some sort, form of anti-Semitism, obviously with for good reason, because it, that is actually going to happen. Uh, we also know that, that he was able to go within the court. We know that, he, that Mordecai sat at the gate to transact business. So he had some position within the court. We don't know exactly what. But he too may have concealed his identity as a Jew. And at very least both Esther and Mordecai had so assimilated into the Persian culture that they were unrecognizable as Jews. 
Nobody knew the difference. So we see here again, as we saw in chapter 1, the ambiguity that the author is using in telling this story. There's so much he doesn't tell us. Maybe the movies do. I have not seen One Night with the King, and my sister gave me another, and I, I don't know if I should watch them or I shouldn't watch them. Um, but again, we see this ambiguity, and, and the author leaves, leaves us to make inferences about what's going on. Were their actions good or bad? How did they feel about the situation? Uh, why did they do what they did? For the most part, we're just not told. The author neither condemns nor justifies their actions. This is what Karen Job says about that. She says, it is natural to pass judgment on these two, Mordecai and Esther, whether positive or negative, but in doing so, we may miss an important point. This deliberate silence is part of the message. Regardless of their character, their motives, or their fidelity to God's law, the decisions Esther and Mordecai make move events in some unscrutable way to fulfill the covenant promises God made to his people long ago. And Dr. Ian DeGood tells us that this is a comforting thing for us because he says, here is hope for all those who find themselves in difficult circumstances in the present because of their past sin and compromise. Perhaps he, God, has brought us to where we are today so that we can serve him in a unique way. If so, that doesn't make those wrong decisions and sinful actions right, but it should cause us to give thanks to God that he is able to form beautiful pictures out of our smudged and stained efforts. Past failures do not write us out of a significant part in God's script for the future. I don't think any of us would advise our daughters the way Mordecai advised Esther. And yet, that didn't write him out of God's plan, nor does it us. Regardless of Esther and Mordecai's motivations or decisions, whether they were good or bad, God was working in and through them to fulfill his purposes and work out his plan. Uh, and, and he does the same through our motivations, through our decisions, whether good, bad, or otherwise. Look, this is, this is real-world stuff. Life is messy, uh, as much as we would like to believe it's neat. And, and we all fall down, and we all screw up, and none of it derails God's plan. I find that comforting. Hallelujah. Thank you. Oh, I got an amen. Uh, so... Now we're going to go on to, to borrow from the movie One Night with a King uh, and the pageant rules. Before a girl's came, turn came to go in to the King Xerxes, she had a, to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months of oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go into the king. It's just so obscure. You know, she's going into the king. Isn't that a nice way of putting it? Uh, <laughs> Anything she wanted, she was given her uh, to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Do you know the first thing I thought of if it was me? I'm going to take my stuffed teddy bear. That's what I want <laughs> with me. He almost went on my honeymoon. He really came close. Uh, in the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So we have this, this 
uh, beauty treatment thing going on with oils and spices and perfumes and uh, getting them as beautiful as possible. And it reminds me again of my mother's motto that anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Uh, and in fact, archaeologists have excavated these cosmetic burners that they used to think were incense burners for worship, but they weren't. They were actually cosmetic incense burners. And the women would put the stuff in it, and they would crouch over, and they'd put their, their cloak over them like a tent. And they'd be in this tent, and they'd just be infused. And when you didn't take baths much, you kind of needed a cosmetic burner uh, to help. Uh, and so... Um, you know, they were, they were given all of these beauty treatments and they were given anything they wanted to take to the king. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you've seen the movies, apparently it tells you what that means. We really don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of nebulous. It, it likely meant jewelry and clothing. Uh, apparently she was given the opportunity to go shop at Victoria's Secret before uh, this big night. Uh, and it may have also meant aphrodisiac, I can't even say that, aphrodisiac, I'm going to start blushing, aphrodisiac potions to bring with her. It likely, based on the wording, also means she got to keep these things after she was done. Yippee, I get to keep a memento of the night I lost my virginity to a pagan king that doesn't care about me. Woo! Oh boy. Afterward, she was returned to the harem and stayed there for life. Living in luxury, yes and also without her family and without a future. Um, so now it's going to be Esther's turn. Esther gets to go into the king. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle Abihail to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the 10th of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So again, she was taken to him. Uh, and again, we don't know her feelings about this. I can kind of guess, but um, it suggests that the situation is beyond her control. Uh, and she wins the heart of Xerxes. Certainly her beauty had something to do with that, but, but how? I'm, I'm really not sure I want to postulate on how she did this. Uh, we know she was beautiful, and she was apparently better at whatever it was that pleased Xerxes, than anybody else, and she is made queen, although the word marriage is never used, as we pointed out earlier. It is, it is implied. You know, I had never thought about this very much uh, until I stu began studying Esther, and, and I kind of always just thought, you know, oh, Esther, heroine, saves the Jews. This part of it had never really occurred to me. And it's like, you know, is it, what, what? You know, all these poor virgins are being rounded up and herded into the bedroom of this awful king. And, and, and I, you know, I have a 16-year-old daughter. Is this the kind of advice I'd give her? No. There's no way. Hey, honey, they're rounding up the virgins. Come on. No way would I want that. And yet here it is in God's word. And, and uh, God is working in and through this situation that seems is totally 
godless. And yet there he is, working out his, his, world, uh, his will through this. And certainly, however, this is a situation that is in complete violation of the law that God gave to the Israelites. Certainly this is not uh, within the parameters of what God... He, you, you weren't supposed to marry someone outside Judaism. But she did, anyway. So, so what is God's will then? Was, was Esther in God's will or out of it? Is she a role model in this or is she not? We hold Esther up as this, as this heroine. Is she really? Well, well certainly the, the author in this part of the story isn't holding her up as a role model. But what we have here is a morally messy situation. And that's the way life often is, isn't it? It's just messy. We are often caught in difficult situations, sometimes of our own making. And there doesn't seem to be a perfect choice to make. And at those times, simplistic moral judgments, while easy to make, are not always real helpful. Karen Job says this. She says, this episode from Esther's life offers great encouragement and comfort when we find ourselves in situations where every choice is an odd mix of right and wrong. Only God knows the end of the story from its beginning. We are responsible to him to live, for living faithfully in obedience to his word in every situation as best we know how. Even if we make the wrong decision, whether through innocent blunder or deliberate disobedience, our God is so gracious and omnipotent that he is able to use that weak link in a chain of events that will perfect his purposes, purposes in us and through us. So then... Uh, and we're not going to read through this, but Mordecai is sitting at the gate transacting business as a member of the court, and he gets wind of an assassination attempt against Xerxes by a couple of his guards, and he tells Esther, tells Esther to tell, Mor uh, tell Xerxes, and Xerxes is told Mordecai is the one who saved your life. And so Xerxes knows that. Xerxes knows that his life has been saved by Mordecai, and they write it all down in the annals of the king. And you'd think that would be rewarded. And yet then the story takes a right turn. After these events, the assassination attempt, and we don't know how long after, it could have been as much as five years, King Xerxes honored Haman. He honored who? Aren't you thinking that's going to say King Xerxes honored Mordecai? For, no, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. So uh, sometime later... Haman is promoted at the very point that we would have expected Mordecai to be promoted Haman gets it and we learn that Haman is an Agagite now I don't have time to go into this but Agag was the king of the Am Amalekite Amalekites who were the first people to attack Israel after they left Egypt and, and and they were in a continuing warfare and God said I will wipe them off the face of the earth which he did 
Although King Saul, when he was told to wipe them all out, kill all their livestock, kill the king, everything, he saved the king and the best of the livestock. And when he got caught, he said, I was saving these livestock so I could present them in sacrifice to God. Yeah. Back when Josh was about four and he knew I couldn't see him from the other room, but he didn't know I couldn't hear him. That's a great age, isn't it? I heard the cookie jar. So I went in, I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm getting a cookie for you. That's what you're doing. Yeah, that's what you're doing. That's, that's what, yeah, the boy is smart. Um, that's what Saul did uh, when he was supposed to uh, not, not do that. Now, Agagite came to be used as a term for all of the Jews' enemies. Um, so it, he might not have been a literal Agagite, a descendant of King Agag, but whether the author means it spiritually or whether he means it genetically, I believe the author is making a point here. He is setting up a battle, a battle between the descendant of Saul and the descendant of Agag, a battle between uh, a, a child of the covenant and the enemies of Israel uh, on purpose. Now, why did Mordecai not bow? We don't know. And, you know, why did he pick this battle? Why not pick the battle where they're rounding up your cousin to go sleep with the king? That would have been a better battle. No, that's not the battle he picked. He said, I won't bow. He bowed to Xerxes, so it couldn't have just been that he was Persian, that Haman was Persian. It, it could be that he, he was uh, resentful that uh, Haman got the promotion, but this could have been as many as five years later. It could be he just didn't like Haman. I'm telling you right now, Haman is unlikable. So that could be. He could have just resented Haman. But I think the most likely explanation is that as, as a Jewish man, he could not bow to an Agagite, to an enemy of the Jews. Um, and uh, he had concealed his identity probably up to this point, but now the cat's out of the bag, and everybody knows that Haman is Jewish, or that, excuse me, that Mordecai is Jewish. So Haman is so angry that he concocts this evil plot. And I, I don't have time to read this, but just let me tell you that he decides it's not enough to just kill Mordecai. I got to commit genocide. I got to kill them all. His fury was so uh, overpowering of him. And so he decides to cast a lot, to, to uh, a purr as it's called, to decide when am I going to do this? When am I going to make sure that all the Jews are destroyed? This is what an ancient purr looks like. Okay, here. Go. There. Kind of like a dice with writing on it. And depending on how it fell, that's the question you answered. No. <laughs> depending on how it fell, uh, that determined your answer. And it was a way, it was a, a method of divination. It was a way of determining what the gods wanted. Or, when Jews used it, what God wanted. And so it fell to the 12th month, 11 months after this um, die was cast, after this lot was, was cast. And uh, interesting that he picked the day to kill the Jews before he asked the king for permission. He must have been pretty sure he'd be successful, and in fact, he was. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest 
to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, said King Haman, and do with the people as you please. So again we see that uh, Xerxes is easily manipulated and without so much as a question agrees to this plot of Haman. Um, notice that, that he, he, again, we have someone telling the king what is in his own best interest. Notice that, again, the king is so easily manipulated, he doesn't even ask, who are these people and what are they doing? He just says, yeah, do it, and follows blindly. Notice that Haman never names the people. He claims that they are wildly disobedient to the king's laws, even though the only law that was broken was to bow to Haman, and the only one who did that was Mordecai. Now all the people are disobedient. Uh, and notice that he appeals to Xerxes' depleted treasury. Look, I know you had a little problem with that war, so I'll put 10,000 talents. That was a lot of money. The entire income through taxes of the empire was 14 to 15,000 talents a year. So it was a huge sum of money. Likely it would come from plundering the Jews that they killed, but I think it was probably still an exaggerated amount. And the king just hands Haman his signet ring and says, do what you wish. Kill them all. And so Haman did as he wished. Haman is identified for the first time as the enemy of the Jews, which should tell you how things are going to turn out for him. Um, and, uh, and then he writes this law. And in the law... The people are instructed to, uh, the, all the people of the empire, everywhere in the empire, and this is sent all over the empire, are instructed to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. I'm reading from uh, the next passage. Hello. Um, young and old, women and little children, and to plunder their goods on the appointed day, the 13th day of the 12th month, 11 months away. God had control even over that little dice, didn't he? So it's sent out to the entire empire, this law, even to the Jews who had returned, the faithful Jews who had returned to their homeland. They were under this law as well. And here's the reaction. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. So while the king and Haman went to go get smashed, the rest of the people of the city of Susa are going, we've lived next to these people all our lives. What do you mean we're going to kill them in 11 months? They must have been very bewildered. So we're left, that's the end of chapter 3, and we're left with this cliffhanger. Um, although I think you probably know who's going to win in the end. I just want to leave you with a few concluding thoughts about this. Um, first of all, we often think of this story, and a lot of stories are this way, as being good, good versus evil. The good guy, the hero, Mordecai, or Esther, against the villain, Haman. In fact, when this story is read to children during Purim, the, the holiday that, Jewish holiday that celebrates this, every time Mordecai or Esther is named, all the kids go, yay! And all, whenever Mordecai is named, they all go, they hiss and they stamp. And, um, and so it's often set up this way, but I don't think this is a good versus evil story. Because none of us is good. We've just discussed that with Mordecai. He wasn't that good. 
I think this is a story about God versus evil. God versus those powers that oppose him, the, the enemies of God. And I probably don't have to tell you then who wins, not just in this story, but for all time and eternity. And one thing that I thought about this as I was studying is, why the Jews? Really? I mean, throughout history, they have been singled out for destruction. Why? I believe it's because our enemy, the enemy of our souls, Satan, does not want the plan of God to go forward. And so he wants to destroy the people of God. And ladies, we who are in Christ are now the people of God. And this is a very provocative thing to say. But if we never feel like we have a target on our backs, either from other people or most definitely from Satan, we're probably not living the way God wants us to live. Because if we are on fire for Jesus, we are a target. Satan doesn't want that. The second sort of thought, as I thought through all this, has to do with judging other people's behavior. Because it's easy to look at our lives and compare them to other people. Notice we always compare them to people who are beneath us. Um, or so we think, and maybe feel pretty good about ourselves. I mean, I've never done anything really bad. I've been married for 25 years. I've been completely faithful. I've never killed anyone. I've never done anything really bad. And yet at the same time, my sin is, is rampant. I speak in anger. I hold a grudge. I say things I shouldn't say. And, and what, um, what Ian DeGood has to say about this really... Uh, convicted me. Maybe it will you too. We are often proud of ourselves because we have not committed any great sins. Yet, does not the very smallness of our sins sometimes condemn us? How little have we received in return for our integrity? How cheaply have we allowed ourselves to be bought? I'm willing to sell my integrity for such a small thing. I'm convicted by that. But finally, I want to leave you with encouragement because the king of Persia cared nothing for the welfare of his people. Uh, he turned over his signet ring on a whim and without question in order to annihilate an entire race of people living under his empire. He cared nothing for their fate. That is not the kind of king we serve. Even though Unlike those Jews living in Persia, who, who the king had no right to kill, we do deserve death for our sin. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. And then Paul tells us in, in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. What we deserve for our sin is death. Our king could have said, you know what? You deserve to die, and so you will. But that's not what he said. Instead of handing down that, that, that uh, sentence of sin on us, he took the sentence on himself. And he died in our place so that we wouldn't have to. I love, I've, I said this uh, earlier a couple weeks ago, but I love how Karen Jobes puts it. She says, Jesus Christ took to the death that was our destiny so that we could have the life that was his, a life that is imperishable and eternal. No power can wrest it from us. That's our king. I also love the way Horatio Spafford puts it in it as well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that you are the King of kings, that you are the Lord of lords, and you could have sentenced us to death, and yet you did not. You, through your Son, reconciled us to yourself for all eternity. Thank you for that, Father. May we never take it for granted. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry I went a little long today, but thank you. I'll see you next week.